As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. And welcome to another unbelievable classic replay. I'm Ruth Jackson, and this week we're delving back into the archives to bring you a discussion on the question. Uh, but uh, is the Bible unbelievable? Because Leslie Scrace, um, a former Methodist minister, now an atheist, has written a book called An Unbeliever's Guide to the Bible. Uh, he's in conversation today with our Christian guest on the show, Chris Sinkinson. So, without further ado, let's join our guests for today's classic replay. Well, thank you, gentlemen, both for being with me on today's show. Let's hear a little bit about you, both your stories. And we'll start with you, Leslie, uh, as it's your first time on the programme today. Uh, thank you for coming in. What, um, tell us a little bit of how things started out for you. Did you grow up in a, a Christian home? Uh, did, was that the, your entry into the church? Methodist home. Mm-hmm. And as a result of evacuation, I ended up in a Methodist boarding school. Um, in the West Country, where Methodism was pretty Bible-based. After the Navy, I went... That was National Service. I went to Richmond Theological College, trained for the Methodist ministry, and served for almost 20 years in different parts of the country. And... um when you went into ministry, would you have described your faith as reasonably certain, uh, evangelical? Yeah. Would would that have you know, been a label you would have put on it? I'd hesitate to say evangelical, but certainly a, a very, I thought, rock-solid faith mm. and very genuine and sincere. I'm sure you'd, you'd grown up with the Bible in church, Um what what at that point in in your journey was your beliefs about the Bible? Did you see it as as it were the inspired word of God? No, um, I grew up in suburban London, where people thought of the Bible as containing the word of God. Mm. In the West Country, people were much more inclined to think of it as the word of God. Mm-hmm. So there was that kind of tension when I was in my teens. But my own position, certainly from my late teens onwards, was that the Bible contained the Word of God rather than that it was the Word Mm. of God. Right. I mean, but even that position was obviously to change over time. So so just sort of briefly, what, what happened in those 20 years of ministry that eventually led you 
out of Christian faith. Yeah. I'm not very good at briefly. <laughs> well, um, as succinctly as you can. <laughs> I spent three years in India, and one Sunday I preached on the divinity of Christ. And afterwards, an elderly Indian member of the congregation asked if he could come back to my house and discuss the sermon. And we sat down over coffee and he said, um, now tell me what you believe. And I said, but I've been telling you this morning. Mm. He said, no, you haven't. You've been telling me what the Bible says, but what do you believe? And I'd never faced that question in that way. And I answered him, well, I believe what the Bible says. And that was the end of the conversation. But, of course, his question wouldn't let me alone. And it took me another 12 years to answer it. But when I finally answered it, it was that I didn't believe. Mm. So, obviously, you, presumably, you couldn't carry on in ministry feeling that without the I, belief in the deity of Jesus. I mean, presumably, that, that yeah. also transpired into a lack of belief in God altogether. There are... There's a complicating factor. <laughs> okay. Um, there always is in life, isn't there? Life I, is left, I left the ministry because um, I'd caused our marriage to break down. Right. I left the church between two and three years later after sitting under a thoroughly good, decent, straightforward, sincere minister who was preaching much the gospel that I'd preached for all those years. And I didn't find it convincing. Right. But it, the point came where it, it dawned on me that I'd grown up with the Bible and with Jesus as perfect God and perfect man. I came to the point where I didn't believe in miracles and that meant not the Incarnation not the resurrection, and therefore not in Jesus as God. Mm. And, of course, once you don't believe in Jesus as God, you don't have to believe in him as perfect man. And you can begin to criticise him. Well, obviously, that, that's kind of where you go in the book, uh, and we'll, we'll come to the book shortly, and uh, we'll start talking about that. Before we do that, let's... Uh, introduce Chris Sinkinson. Uh, Chris, you've been with us a couple of months ago now. Um, that was in conversation with John Hick on whether there are many paths to God. Welcome back, though, for this this interaction. Um, tell us a bit of your background, because we didn't get a lot of chance to explore that last time. So, so tell us where, where your faith journey has come from, too. Thank you, Justin. Well, uh, I was brought up, I suppose, in a fairly traditional kind of church background. And when I say traditional, I mean uh, I did go to church, but it didn't mean a great deal to me, and I don't think there was any uh, fervour in terms of um, what we might believe or not believe. And, uh, you know, obviously we know that in the sort of broader church world there can be people with all sorts of beliefs who are still operating as ministers. And I do appreciate Leslie's candour and uh, integrity in recognising that if you don't believe in certain things, you can't really continue to function as a Christian minister. And uh, there are many who don't quite make that link. And that would have been my experience growing up. So I would have been church-going as a young person, but not really seeing any connection to my personal life. And certainly, uh, I would have uh, felt the Bible was irrelevant to my life. 
Now, I became a Christian as a late teenager, and uh, I suppose that could be described as very much an evangelical conversion. And uh, subsequent to that, though I'm an, uh, part of my life is as an academic teaching at Moreland's College, the other part of my life I've been in pastoral ministry, so I'm minister of a, mm. a, a small but I hope growing congregational church, so similar to a Methodist church background in that sense, uh, a free, free evangelical church now in the, in the New Forest. And uh, I've been there about 11 years now. And I suppose listening to, to Leslie and reading his book, I'm struck by parallels. Uh, you know, I've moved into pastoral ministry and been in some form of pastoral ministry for 15, 20 years now. But also, of course, dissimilarities. And I think there's something I found fascinating about the book that you've written, Leslie, in that I react to the Bible in such a different way. Uh, what I see is uh, so exciting and vibrant and intriguing. Uh, I think you find quite boring and uh, you feel quite distant from. And I, I'd love it if in this debate we can just mm. tease out some of that, uh, that difference would be good. of reaction. Before we get to that debate, I mean, Leslie talked about the fact that he, he was preaching, but when he reflected on it, he realised he wasn't really sure he believed in this stuff he was preaching. Um, I, I mean, do, do you sort of at all ever sort of find yourself wrestling, having to say one thing in the pulpit, as this is definitely true, and then afterwards wrestling with it, how do we actually get to, to believing that to be true? yourself Chris? Well it's a great question all I can say is I hope that it's not the case you know I hope that anything I would teach from the pulpit I would mm. believe with absolute sincerity and, and conviction and I mean who knows the secrets of the heart but I mean as far as I'm aware I can say with integrity that I would only teach from the pulpit what I absolutely believe. That doesn't mean of course that there aren't big issues and questions and mm. I think you know if you spoke to my uh, congregation they would say that I, I would quite freely share from the pulpit mm. when I'm struggling with an issue yeah. uh, and there are many parts of the Bible where we may find it very difficult to understand quite what's going on. Uh, we've just finished a series in the book of Joshua and I don't know Leslie if you preach through the book of Joshua but as you're very familiar with the book you'll know that there are many passages which are very hard to understand morally in terms of what happened in a city like Jericho and so on and I would very freely share that these are issues that we need to wrestle with they're not mm. easily settled and uh, that's an ongoing part of the intellectual side of, of yeah. coming to grips with what the Bible says. We're talking today is the Bible unbelievable? Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. I mean, you've obviously outlined some of the uh, journey that took you to writing this book, um, Leslie. But but it does strike me that the way you look at the Bible now is incredibly different to the way you would have once viewed it. And and just strikes me that it's such a large swing. I, I'm almost I, I can't quite understand why you've swung so far in the other direction. You must have come across some of these issues before in your Christian life uh, you, that you must have struggled with difficult passages and uh, and those sorts of things uh, I mean wh wh what's made you kind of go completely in the opposite direction as it were to, to totally the other sceptical end of the spectrum if you like when I left the church I stopped reading the Bible and I didn't read it for 20 years you talked about the Old Testament most of my preaching was on the New Testament using the old to preach about the new rather than preaching on the Old Testament. But suddenly I stopped and I didn't look at the Bible for 20 years. Then when we moved to Dorset, I had a few months when I didn't have any work to do. And I thought, let's have a look at the Bible and see what I think of it now. Mm. And I sat down and simply read it from cover to cover. No commentaries, no scholarly 
discussion, just read it to see what it said to me, and I scribbled as I read, and that book is the result. I have moved further and further away. In the early days, I found it extremely difficult, for example, to criticize Jesus. Now I see him very much as a human being like the rest of us, flawed, imperfect, um, with plenty of virtues, with some marvelous teaching, but just as flawed as the rest of us. And I'm, um, I feel free to criticize certainly the Bible picture of Jesus, where I wouldn't have done 20 years ago. I mean, I don't think you're claiming this to be a you know, a sort of, you know, university level scholarly sort of book. It, no. is, it is your reflections. It's on, just me on sitting book. down yeah. with the Bible and, yeah. and scribbling out what, what hit what, me as I yeah. read it. Uh, it. From the point of view of, you know, coming to it as an atheist some 20 years yeah. later. Yeah. Uh, Chris, wh- when you read the book, what, how, you know, and feel free now just to, to converse hmm. between yourselves, gents, but but what what was your take on the way that Leslie treated You mean Leslie's book, not the Bible? Right? Yes, that's <laughs> okay. what I mean. <laughs> um, well, I, I mean, Leslie, I, 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 mean, I found it a, a book that was humorous in parts and uh, appreciated your honesty in the way that you wrote it, very, very accessible. Uh, but I'm reminded of that little poem, two men looking through the same prison bars, one sees mud and the other sees stars. And uh, both of us seem to be looking out on, on life or the Christian faith or the Bible that we read and seeing something quite different. You see a lot of mud and uh, you identify that. You see some gems as well, and I appreciate the way that you can identify yes, some gems. Yes, it's but... important. Mm-hmm. I do see gems. Mm. Mm. And I appreciate that. But I do see plenty of mud as you well. You see a lot of mud, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, you're not quite in the sort of Richard Dawkins camp of uh, the new atheists who will dismiss the whole of the Bible uh, without recognising some of the great moral lessons that are there and some of the good stories that are there. So I, I can certainly appreciate that. But regarding the mud, you know, I look at the, the, the biblical stories and so on and see so much that is revealing to us the character of a God who is moral and loving and holy and just and of course that's in the context of a progressive revelation so i can recognize that in earlier sections of the bible or indeed in later sections of the bible god has communicated himself in a way that's uh, relevant to the culture uh, that addresses issues in terms of that cultural context and so we've got to do the job and you did this job for many decades no doubt faithfully we have to do the job of interpreting the passages, recognising those cultural differences, trying to understand how it applies to our own time, and and how God spoke in a way which I think John Calvin, in his commentary on Genesis, describes God as using baby speech. It's like God speaking to babies, and a a nurse uh, with a a baby in her arms will babble in some way to the baby, because you have to use language that's appropriate for the time and place. And so, as I read the Bible, I read it understanding and recognising that that's the context, and seeing not mud, but gold and of course our reactions to the bible are therefore quite different so as i read your book i I read it recognizing that it's quite a different perspective that we come with um you mentioned richard dawkins when i wrote the book i never intended to publish it never felt there was any point in publishing it it's partly because of richard dawkins that i felt i had to because I felt I needed to say to other humanists, there is gold in this book. So in but some I, ways I should be thanking you, shouldn't I, Leslie? But I, <laughs> because that but I also felt I needed to say to Christians, mm. some humanists find gold in this book, but they find a lot else as well. Mm. 
I mean, regarding the mud, let's say, I mean, you might, you know, you said you were doing a, uh, a series on Joshua, and, and as you said, you get to the story of, you know, the, the Sunday school story of the fall of Jericho. That's all lovely, marching around the walls. What doesn't normally get told in the Sunday school story is then they went in and slaughtered every man, woman, and child in the city. Uh, and that, of course, is, you know, we did a program uh, a few weeks ago, well, a couple of months ago now, uh, on Is God a Moral Monster, looking at those sort of passages um, with Paul Copan, uh, and who's written a book on it. But um, I mean, I think those are the kinds of morality that you would point out as as showing the Bible, presumably, Leslie, as purely a, a book of its time, not one that we can draw all our moral inspiration from. Yeah, is, not, is that the point? I wouldn't go quite as far as that. Um, you talked about the evolution of thought that runs through the Bible. And curiously enough, Dawkins is a man who focuses on evolution in all his scholarly work and doesn't notice the evolution in man's conception of God. Now, you've got that in the Bible, and so you've got to pay attention to that, in, particularly in the Old Testament. But although there is that sort of evolution, you do have to ask yourself, yes, there's an evolution in the way we look at God, but God himself doesn't change, if there is a God. And therefore, the God of Genesis is just as responsible for what goes on there as the God of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Well, I agree entirely, and I mean that would be why I think the word evolution is probably not the best metaphor to use. I, I would use the term progressive revelation, which would be a, a very standard Christian theological way of describing the or holding together, let's say, the, the doctrine of a God who doesn't change, you're absolutely right, with our knowledge of that God, our reception of what that God is like. God couldn't reveal all of what he's like in one go. In fact, we'll have to have eternity to try to begin to understand what God is like. But God can partially reveal himself. And in the unfolding you know, centuries as the Bible unfolds, I think God reveals himself and the bigger picture emerges. So we don't need to be... Uh, you know, wondering if Abraham or an earlier patriarch in the in the Bible understood all of Christian doctrine because there's progressive revelation, that the revelation unfolds. And so God, I'm not suggesting that God changes or that the Bible was wrong in, in its earlier books and right in its later books, but that God's revelation has, has progressively revealed more of what God is like. And in terms of the mud of the Bible, I think what I would mean by the mud isn't uh, God's character, that the mud is that the Bible is very honest and raw in describing human nature. And many of the, the stories I think that you pick up on in, in, in the Bible, in your, your book, are stories which clearly reveal the failings of, of men and women, warts and all. But those stories aren't necessarily telling us that those are a good example for us or telling us that that's what God is like or how we should behave. And those narratives have to be interpreted quite carefully because the mud is there, but uh, that's because the Bible is being very honest in its revelation. But through it, the gold of who God is like is something that remains intact. But then if you move, as I did, to the point where you don't believe in God anymore, then you see all these as purely human stories. Yes, though even even if you took that position, you, you would still want to say that a, a narrative has to be interpreted very carefully because what a story says isn't necessarily what a story is telling us to do. So there's a difference between a, a descriptive story and a prescriptive story. So when we read the story of David, 
we have to tread very, very carefully in terms of what is the moral lesson for us. Okay, we read that David had a heart after God's own heart, but we also know he was an adulterer, practically a murderer. Uh, David had many, many failings. And so the, the narrative has to be interpreted very carefully in terms of what lesson are we supposed to learn from it. Do you, do you think that it's um, trying to do too much to draw moral lessons from books that were written to an entirely different culture three or four thousand years ago, Leslie? Is that is that your problem that we should we shouldn't be trying in the first place to to to, to draw moral lessons from this kind of literature? I don't think there is any morality in a lot of the the literature of the Old Testament. Um, and a lot of the morality that does emerge is flawed. Um, I mean, flawed by what standard? By the standard you're judging by it my, by By today. my standard, mm. not by... Um, because what, what strikes I mean, for me For example, is that... the Ten Commandments mm, mm. is the obvious Old Testament morality. Now, for somebody who doesn't believe in God half those commandments go out of the window straight away. And you're left talking about things like do not steal and so on, which are fairly common to any morality, regardless it, of whether it's religious or not. It would be circular reasoning, though, wouldn't it, Leslie, to say that because you don't believe in God, therefore all of this morality that's connected to God and the worship of God is therefore irrelevant or undermines the credibility of the Bible. I mean, that would be a very circular argument to present. I think if you don't believe in God, then you look at the morality in a different way. If you believe in God, then the morality is laid down and you have to obey. Certainly you have to understand, if you can, first, but you have to obey I'd like to, I mean, that would be good to get onto, I think, where, where morality comes from. I mean, I think that is a very important uh, issue that comes up in discussion uh, in the whole new atheism debate. So the issue of where morality comes from is very important. But I do notice in terms of the way you read the Bible that your treatment of the morality of the Bible does seem to have this circular reasoning where because you don't believe in God, therefore the stories are, sometimes I think you describe them as absurd, uh, sometimes I think you make comments like um, uh, they're not worth bothering with, something along those lines. Yeah, quite and definitely. And it's, it's, it's because, of course, of your perspective where God really has no bearing on it. So inevitably, uh, you know, half the Ten Commandments aren't going to be, be relevant to you. But, but if we could talk about morality for a well, moment... Well, we could... In a moment, because we'll go to a break first, um, because I, I wouldn't want to broach that large subject uh, without having the time to do it justice. So we'll go to a quick break now and uh, we'll have time to discuss that in the, in the coming section. Uh, and we'll also try and get to maybe some particular examples that we'll draw out of the book, the, the, because you take each book of the Bible literally in order in this book, Leslie, and, and give your thoughts on each one. Um, uh, and, and so we'll, we'll, we'll have a look at what you have to say about Ecclesiastes, um, some of the, the smallest Jewish stories, Esther and things like that. Uh, the Apocrypha you also include, which is interesting. So, And of course we'll get to the New Testament as well. So um, keep listening. Uh, we're doing a discussion today on, is the Bible unbelievable? If you can uh, pronounce that quickly, you're a, a better narrator than I am. Uh, but uh, is the Bible unbelievable? Because Leslie Scrace, um, a former Methodist minister, now an atheist, has written a book called An Unbeliever's Guide to the Bible. Uh, he's in conversation today with our Christian guest on the show Chris Sinkinson 
who's a lecturer in apologetics and Old Testament at Moreland's Bible College, also leads a church in the New Forest. So uh, we'll be uh, getting back into this discussion in just a moment's time here on the programme that aims to get you thinking unbelievable. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask NT Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. So coming back to you, Leslie, uh, just picking up on, on sort of what Chris was, was talking about in that last section, um, I, I got the impression just going through the book that, that what your approach seems to be uh, taking a book and if it doesn't, as it were, match your view of what morality should be, you say it really doesn't have anything to say to us, it, we can safely ignore that. But when something does sort of cohere with a kind of humanist perspective on the world, that's that's fine. And so, you know, you say of numbers, for instance, um, at the start of the, the, the description of that, you say, uh, I suggested that the book of Leviticus was not worth reading, and I can't recommend the book of numbers either. Um, <laughs> Esther, which, you know, our, our church did a, a four-week series on, you know, you say, unless you like nasty horror stories of humans behaving badly to one another, don't bother to read this book. <laughs> um, uh, obviously, so, so many people have felt that these books are worth spending time on, and there are things to be drawn out of them, and if we dig into the historical context and try to understand it within that, there's there's value there there's there, but but, but you, the, the attitude sometimes comes across as very dismissive in the book of those things it, so so are you treating the bible fairly you know when when it comes to these sorts of um descriptions you've given of these particular books whether i'm treating it fairly or not is for other people to judge <laughs> i'm simply treating the bible as i found it reading it again after a 20 year absence when I was a Christian, I read it all the time. Um, New Testament every year, Old Testament over a period of three years, but constantly reading it, constantly studying it. But then I didn't read it, and coming back to it, these were my reactions to the books. They were personal reactions. Mm. I don't expect other people to agree or disagree or whatever they, they are very personal aren't they and uh, uh, it did read as a very very honest but very subjective response to the bible and uh, i was struck i i almost uh, was going to count the number of times you used the word boring though i felt it'd be a bit neurotic for me to do that but uh, the, the word boring came up a number of times when you described the bible and i thought well or, or certain books of the bible i should say and 
one of the, the difficulties I have with that kind of response to a book like the Bible or a collection of books like the Bible is that the word boring really depends on what sort of expectations we have when we come to a particular book. So, I mean, if, if we were to pick up a telephone directory expecting to read a Harry Potter blockbuster, we'd find the telephone directory boring. If we pick it up expecting to find a phone number of a, a friend, we'd find it very interesting for our purposes. And I think uh, each book of the Bible is quite different, and our reaction can say more about us than it does about the book. Can I just give you one example that I'd like mm -hmm. to, to bring up from the book? This is your um, very brief uh, synopsis of The Song of Songs, which yeah. is one of my favourite books. And you say, now here is a book which can be dismissed. How this book found its way into a library of books, of supposedly holy books, only the ancient Jews can explain. If you have a taste for erotic oriental poetry, read it. If not, skip it. And then we move on. Well, now, <laughs> to put in a word of defence for the Song of Solomon, surely, uh, in terms of the, the canon of scripture, isn't it a beautiful thing that we have a book that celebrates physical, sexual, romantic love? Because it really does create a problem for those... Uh, prudish Christians who somehow think that maybe sex is not uh, a gift from God or not something to be honoured and part of our, our celebration of God's gifts to us. And that's where I think that reaction to a book it seems to me to say more about us than it does about the book. I find it a very exciting book to read and try and interpret. Right, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I detected that, I detected that. But I did think it interesting how our responses, yeah. which, which for me tell us more about something going on in us than uh, about I mean I'd be interested you say how did a book uh, that is essentially you know could be seen as erotic literature find its way into a canon of, of holy books I mean Chris sees that as an incredibly you know enlivening thing about the Bible that it does contain such a wealth of different types of literature material that, that obviously the, the Jewish people felt was expressive of their faith and its variety I mean for you the, the problem might be, from a Christian point of view, they might see you as being the narrow-minded one, Leslie, in suggesting that, you know, this isn't appropriate literature for a, a book like the Bible, as though, we, you know, I mean, yeah, they, you know. They may well feel that. <laughs> I don't feel it's appropriate literature, whereas, for example, a book like the Book of Job, I feel is a magnificent book to be within a canon of script, scripture. And I feel the Book of Job has an immense amount to say to anybody, regardless of their religion or irreligion. But, but I mean, I just just press this a bit further. Why, why exclude the Song of Solomon, though? I mean, given it is different, you know, it may not speak to that particular situation of suffering and pain, but it speaks to a different situation of the joy of sexual intimacy. Uh, it, why is that wrong to be included in a? from your point of view from my point of view it doesn't teach us anything about the God of the Bible and it doesn't teach us anything about the way we should behave would you agree with that Chris? Uh, not at all no I mean I think that is a very subjective response and I think it uh, misses the point I mean uh, uh, that we can celebrate sexual love that we need to be careful about the power of passion. Uh, kisses are described as like wine, I think, in the Song of Solomon. It's intoxicating, dangerous, uh, can, can lead us astray. There are so many lessons there about love and romance, which, of course, if we're not careful, we can have a certain kind of sanitised Christianity that doesn't really apply to real, everyday 
earthy living. And so I, I find it an enormously helpful part of the canon to have literature like this. I mean, we have a, as you rightly describe it, we have a library of books in our hands, for over 40 different authors uh, with so many different backgrounds written in times of war and peace, written in places as diverse as palace and battlefield. With all of this diversity, I think the Bible rightly meets Paul's criteria in the New Testament of being... Uh, able to make the the person of God complete, the man or woman of God complete, because there's something that applies to, I think, pretty much every aspect of living. Now, I mean, but what about turning to Job? Because okay. Uh, okay, let's talk about an area where you can agree that there's some p- profound truths to be dug out. Probably you might d- um, differ on exactly how those are then uh, interpreted. Mm-hmm. But but you, let's talk about Job, Leslie. You say Job is a book that you would happily recommend. Yeah. a humanist friend to read. Why so? Because it seems to me that it wrestles with real problems. Um, it wrestles with how we cope with disaster in life. And um, how we pick ourselves up after disaster and find our own way forward. And because of the different people who offer their own take on what's happened to Job, um, to me it's a very human book, and a book where um, the God element doesn't show God in a very good light, Um, but it can be left out altogether. This is a human wrestling with human problems Mm. and finding his own way forward. Well, um, the irony of that that reaction to the book of Job is that as far as I can see, without the divine element, I'm not sure what comfort the book really brings because, of course, the the words of the comforters that we follow chapter after chapter in the book of Job are really unhelpful words. I yeah. mean, it's ironic that most of the book of Job is bad advice, yeah. <laughs> yeah. which which of course is a reminder to us of the care we need to take in terms of interpretation. There's a, an issue of hermeneutics. And how should we interpret the book of Job? Well, I think the way in which God reveals himself to Job and the way in which God gives Job a perspective on suffering in the light of the, the divine purposes that really are beyond our understanding I've found in terms of pastoral ministry and counselling, people who've gone through some dreadful suffering and dreadful experiences, I've found that the, the ultimate point of the book of Job is the great source of strength and comfort. That however life seems to be out of control, we can trust a God who is there before the foundation of the world, that he hasn't taken his hands off the steering wheel, that God knows what he's doing. And the fact we can't understand all of that doesn't mean we can't have faith and trust in him. So my personal experience in pastoral counselling, I found that an enormously helpful uh, way of bringing comfort. That's that's not the picture of God that comes across to me in the book of Job. Um, The literature is magnificent. Mm. Brilliant writing. But he comes across as a most awful bully. Mm -hmm. And Job really is left to his own devices. And that I think is the real message. Are you referring here to the kind of when the story is set up, as it were, and and, uh, God gives Satan permission to 
wreak whatever disasters on Jericho. No, it's when you, when you come later on. It's when God, God reveals himself. God revealing okay. his majesty and so his glory. It's the end of the book. When, it's it's yeah. wonderful literature. And it's mm. God saying essentially to Job, yes. sort of, who are you Just to, question, quiet, yeah. to question yeah. me? Yeah. Look, look, at, look at all the things that I have done and yeah. uh, the power before you. And whereas, you'd agree, whereas you'd agree, that's, that's a word. kind of a it's, bully, oh, bullying yes, God. But it's Job himself who actually finds his own way through. And that, to me, is the message of Job to anybody facing any crisis in life. We have help from other people, but we have to find our own way through, and there's no other way. When God reveals himself in those, as you say, as you rightly point out, those very beautiful, powerful words, he draws attention to his power over creation, his purposes in creation, and also his tender care of creation. I love that lengthy description of the way that he cares for the ostrich and the cattle and the the, the creatures of the world. And there's that sense in which in the world around us, we don't know why there is suffering. We don't have simple soundbite answers to the problem of evil, but we can, with faith, trust in God's ultimate purposes and care for us. And certainly that's what I found is the strength of the book of Job in pastoral counselling and care. Take those bits out of the book of Job, take that revelation of God out of the book of Job, and I think we have a very long book of bad advice. (laughs) Yeah, there's plenty of bad advice in it, certainly. And that is where the quality of Job himself comes through. Because Job's quality is that he does not curse God. Even in the midst of that, and his wife suggesting he might, Job refuses to curse God. I, I, I find um, there's, there's one commentary I find particularly helpful on, on Job in the Word Biblical Commentary series where the author points out that the purpose of Job is not so much to give an answer as to why suffering, but to give an answer to how to suffer. And what we learn from Job is how to suffer with faith in God and go through the mill rather than necessarily any, any particular answer to why God allows suffering. And I find that a very helpful way of responding to the book of Job, but quite different from your own. Yeah, very different. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've done Job. <laughs> now, I mean, this is obviously, you know, it comes back to the fact that you're approaching it from, from fundamentally different points of view. You're approaching it, Chris, from a faith point of view. Uh, you're approaching it from, from your atheist point of view, Leslie. And I just wonder, that is bound to make a difference to how one what one gets out of a book isn't it whether one has Mm. an a priori agreement with the the central principle Mm. that there is a god and he's revealed himself in Mm. jesus christ will, will make a huge difference unbelievable with justin Brierley. And uh, an alliterative title for our discussion this more this well this afternoon is the Bible unbelievable? We've been asking, and and uh, as we continue this section, gentlemen, um, I'd like to get to the New Testament. We've talked a lot about the Old. Um, in a sense, though, Leslie, m- most Christians I know do something similar to what you described earlier, where where they're really preaching from the New and using the Old, using the New in a sense to interpret the Old Testament, and and very much, you know, I would see as in my in the way i view the bible is that jesus is you know the ultimate revelation of god is is um as hebrews puts it you know god spoke to us in many ways in various ways in the past but today he has spoken to us in person of his son jesus christ and and so does that not for you um in any way alleviate any of these problems you have with where there are difficult passages and morality that you don't find acceptable in the old testament the fact that we do have what is commonly agreed to be uh, 
an ultimate, you know, moral figure, uh, Jesus Christ in the New Testament? Or, or do you have problems with Jesus when it comes to, to, to his, his uh, moral standing in the New? I have problems with Jesus, but also with this business of an increasing revelation. Mm, progressive revelation. Progressive yeah. revelation. Why should Abraham not have been allowed to see God in all his fullness? Uh, why do we have to wait for Jesus? And if you're a Muslim, why do we have to wait for Muhammad? I don't, I don't feel that that's fair on the human race. But I do have problems with Jesus. Um, partly, I think, because for so many years I felt that because he was defined as perfect he could not be criticised. And then increasingly, in recent years, when I look at Jesus, I see things that I want to criticise. Um, take that little incident when he was a boy, left behind in Jerusalem, and his parents found him after three days. I was in a group once where a clergyman's wife said, well, I'd have given him a good hiding. Um, <laughs> He blamed his parents. Children do, when their parents lose them. Well, where were you? Mm. Well, um, I can see what you're saying, and you're suggesting, well, we, we sort of tend to treat Jesus as there's a special case here. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and in reality, if you take away that, you can see he's just being a naughty boy like any other. Yeah. Can I pick up on another example? Mm. Because uh, I, I think this really does come to the nub of the issue to, to think about our reaction to Jesus. And I think in the book, you draw attention to the way in which you did find this quite a difficult thing to come to terms with, mm. because for many years you'd had such great high respect for Jesus. Now, in terms of your reaction, uh, I, I, I react to what I read of, of Jesus sometimes with um, surprise. I sometimes find what, what he says and does uh, hard to understand. And what that does for me is make me want to try to understand it better. So to take one example, which you, you use in your book, the example of Jesus cursing the fig tree. Now, Bertrand Russell uses this as well in his book, Why I'm Not a Christian, decades ago, as an example of the immorality of Jesus. Jesus bad-tempered because he curses the fig tree for not bearing fruit, and it wasn't the season for figs, as the disciples say. Now, how do you react to that? Well, your, your reaction is to say it's a good example of the, the, the weakness, the fallibility of Jesus. But when we look at the background to this passage, we know that actually there's something else going on here. Uh, I was in Israel in around Passover time, just before Passover time, a couple of years ago. And on the fig trees that grow around the Mount of Olives, eastern side of Jerusalem, there is a fig, a green fig, that appears before the June figs. So around Passover time, I saw these growing. And the Arabs have a name for it. I think it's Taksh. And these are figs that can be eaten. They are edible. They're not particularly nice, but they are edible, little green figs. And they appear before the June main fig appears. Now, Jesus, when just before Passover, he looks at the fig tree and it bears no figs, what he's describing there is the lack of these green figs, the taksh. And because there were none of these green figs there, it meant, it implied, that it wouldn't bear the proper figs come June. Because if these figs don't appear on a bush, then it's not going to bear the real deal come June. So... When we look at the background, we see that what Jesus was noting is that this was a barren fig tree. It wasn't going to bear the figs that it should. And yet 
we gloss out, we miss that point entirely if we're quick to dismiss what we read because perhaps we're looking to find faults. And certainly with Bertrand Russell, maybe I won't say this of you, mm-hmm. Leslie, but certainly with Bertrand Russell, I think he was somebody who was looking to find faults. He was picking out stories that were hard to understand at first in order to, to make this case to dismiss Jesus. Even if what you say true is true, that doesn't justify Jesus in cursing the fig tree. I think the the issue of cursing the fig tree is in order to give us like a living parable. It's a metaphor of what would fall upon the city of Jerusalem. So I mean, I if Jesus had cursed someone and made them die, then you might have a point. But but I'm just All wondering, right. is, is it such a crime to, take, to t- as a metaphor, curse a fig tree? Take the story, Do we cut down trees all the time? Take the story of Jesus um, healing the chap and driving the devils out into the pigs, mm-hmm. which rushed to their doom. Mm-hmm. He doesn't care about the pigs. He doesn't care about the swine herds who lose their living. All he cares about is the chap he's healed. And everybody says, what a wonderful chap. I think the they, they, drove, they drove him out of the... Yeah, the, the, they, they the, certainly the, took offence They took a, Jesus. But, but cl- clearly from that uh, incident, we, we learn that for Jesus, people mattered more than pigs. And that actually is a warning to our society where I think sometimes we're in danger of making pigs matter more than people. Uh, And Jesus certainly gives a value to people. You talked about morality. Mm. Jesus, yes, Jesus says that people matter more than sheep. Jesus says that that God um, cares when when a sparrow dies, so won't he care about every hair of your head and that sort of thing. Mm. Humans think that we matter more than pigs. Humans think that we matter more than sheep. Humans think that we matter more than sparrows. But sparrows, sheep and pigs don't. No, and this, of course, is where we would want to set our understanding of humanity within the context of of a whole biblical framework of men and women being made in the image of God and being therefore uh, bearers of the image of God, having a special role in creation. Now, of course, it's again an example of circular reasoning, I think, that once you've removed that, once you've removed that framework, you would then say, well, this is immoral behaviour. But I, I would certainly adopt a biblical worldview which would give men and women a special significance that's not just animals and my worry leslie is that when we don't have that moral framework what does that mean when we have to choose between the chimpanzee and the person or between the the rat and the person uh, somehow we need to make a distinction my biblical worldview allows me to make that distinction people matter more than pigs but i'm not sure that the atheistic worldview does allow you to make that distinction a person will always put a person before a pig or a rat or whatever. But that doesn't mean that we're more important. It means that we're standing up for ourselves as human beings. But there's no objective morality. What you're saying is there's no objective morality. No, this is purely subjective. This is just personal looking after this is just looking after number one. And what if there were a group of people who said, Well our our tribe matters more or our age group matters more? what about those distinctions? Well, people do. Well, exactly. But but our response from a Christian worldview would be to say, well, this is wrong. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer stood up against the Nazis with their ideology in 1930s Germany, Bonhoeffer was able to do that because of that Christian worldview. And from that worldview opposed Nazism. Don't pinpoint Bonhoeffer because if you're going to, you can immediately pinpoint other Christians who supported the Nazis. 
Well, I would suggest that those Christians who supported the Nazis had a very flaky, probably quite liberal Christian worldview. I mean, historically, that's borne out. No. Uh, those who oppose Nazism, like Karl Barth and the Confessing Church in Germany, represent what, to me, is biblical Christianity, more evangelical and robust. No, but it... certainly the liberal uh, Christianity that stemmed, I think, from the Victorian era and from Friedrich Schleiermacher and the German tradition, they did support Nazism. You're quite right. But no. that's not the biblical worldview. Now you're beginning to take the line of a lady who talked to me years ago and every time I offered a criticism of anybody Christian, oh, well, they're not really Christian. Oh, well, they're not really Christian. Oh, well, they're not really Christian. Okay, a fair point. And uh, um, no, you're quite right. I mean, I don't need to, to defend uh, everything that every Christian has said because obviously I'm one of them who makes mistakes and says the wrong thing. So I'm not uh, suggesting that. But in terms of a, a doctrine of humanity and an objective morality... That, I think, is, is part of the warp and woof of biblical theology, that we have objective morality, that men and women made in the image of God. And this, this is fundamental to our understanding. And, and isn't the whole point life. of what Jesus did teach is, is it's not about number one. I mean, he, he was teaching something that often goes against our initial instincts to look after us. He said, put, you know, the last yeah. shall be first and the first shall be last. He said, you shall be the servant of all. That's the way that you should, they, they shall know that you yeah, are. Yeah, a lot of the teaching of Jesus is wonderful. But it, it's not it. wonderful if you are someone who believes that survival of the fittest is the natural order. Is I'm it? not saying... It, survival of the fittest is what we do, regardless of morality. We look after ourselves, our families. We put them first. This is what we do by nature. It has nothing to do with religion. It has nothing to do with morality. When you're talking about morality, I don't believe that, that human beings are any different from any other animals in terms of um, value. I certainly don't believe that we're made in the image of God. We'll go to our final section in just a moment's time and, and we'll allow just that, that conversation to continue, which I think is important to tease out here as, as we come to the end, looking at the actual foundation of, of morality at, at some level. Um, because you've said some very interesting things there, Leslie, that you don't feel there is actually any ultimate distinction between physical creatures. It's just, it's just you know, the, the laws of nature taking their, their, their course. And, and I would beg to differ. I have a feeling Chris would, but, I, I but, think but we'll, we'll come to that. chimes with the contemporary mm -hmm. world, and it frightens me what that will mean for the care of the handicapped and the weak of society, the vulnerable. It frightens well, me. Well, let's go to that in a moment. You're listening to Unbelievable with me, Justin Briley, your host. Uh, on the show today, Leslie Scrace, former Methodist minister, now an atheist. He's written a book called An Unbeliever's Guide to the Bible. That's what we've been looking at in today's show. We'll, we'll con uh, just finish off our discussion in a moment's time after a quick break with Chris Sinkinson, who's uh, been uh, discussing the book with Leslie. Uh, back in just a moment's time. It's really flown by today. So much more that I, I wanted to get to, but there's never the chance, of course, even within the, the broad uh, scope of this programme. But uh, we've been talking about the uh, Unbeliever's Guide to the Bible, a book by Leslie Scrace. Uh, I'm going to post a link on the web page of this programme, premier.org.uk slash unbelievable, asking the question, is the Bible unbelievable? But we've been talking really around the issues of morality primarily on today's show and whether 
we can, you know, sort of judge Old Testament passages in terms of our modern-day morality. Chris Sinkinson, who's a lecturer in apologetics in the Old Testament at Moreland's Bible College, says we need to understand the Bible in its context. We need to understand this idea of progressive revelation, which culminates, if you like, in the person of Jesus Christ in the Bible. Uh, Leslie says, uh, as far as he's concerned, you know, we need to leave the Bible where it is in, you know, two two or three thousand years ago with many of these stories. But sure, um, I'll grant you... there are a few gems in there as well so um gents we kind of got to the point just in that last section of talking about kind of you know the ultimate foundations for morality leslie you were saying how as a humanist you don't see that there is any ultimate objective moral values in the world we we simply are the product of an evolutionary history and yes we're we're kind of living out those genetics looking after each other and, and that's kind of where morality, if you like, uh, gets tacked on to that in some way. That's not quite what I said. I'm no scientist. I don't understand those things. Um, I believe that our morality is human. Mm -hmm. A human invention, in that sense? A lot of it is for the protection of humans. Thou shalt not steal is for the protection of people who've got property. If you've got nothing, you've nothing to fear from thieves. Um, but I, where morality comes from today, I think if you care about these things, you look at all sorts of teachers. Now, for me, one of the great teachers of the early world was Epicurus. And in some, in some areas, he's in advance of Jesus although he was several centuries before. You look at all these teachers, you listen to them, you think about what they've got to say, but in the end, you have to make up your own mind and stand on your own feet, not be dictated to by anybody else. Well, of course, I agree with that, Leslie. I think that we should make up our own minds and work it out for ourselves. But in matters of morality... It cannot simply come down to our personal preference. That's not morality. I mean, if it is personal preference, all we're really dealing with are feelings or choices, and we're only really dealing in the world of, of descriptions of the I'm way things are. I'm not talking about preference. I'm talking about trying to work out for yourself what you think is right. Yeah, but then but, you're but using the a word that, right. that, that, that has a, an objective yeah. value. Yeah. And so if you say Epicurus is a better moral teacher than Jesus... Better according to which standard? Is there an objective standard, therefore, to which Epicurus is is nearer than Jesus was? I think he treated women better than Jesus. Okay, but but is there an? But the better. Where does the better? Where does the better come from? If if there is, this is the whole problem for me of the humanist perspective: is that they talk about better this and better that, all the while denying that there is this standard to which this better is getting closer to. So I don't understand how you can talk about their better treatment of women. Is there a standard by which we should treat women objectively in this world? And if so, how have you arrived at that belief? I think the human race still hasn't arrived at, at a proper but treatment what is, of women. But then you haven't explained what this proper, treat, this proper standard is and how it exists independently of evolution and everything else. I mean, you, you treat woman, women as human beings in precisely the same way as you treat men as human beings. But why? 
I suppose if I, I mean, if I could defend Leslie's point for a moment as well. Sorry, I'm getting a bit aggressive I do here. Think, sorry, sorry. Justin, I just want to defend Leslie for a moment because I don't know I mean, why. You, you could come up with an account of uh, ethics and history on the basis of let's say, naturalistic evolution, because you could come up with something like uh, John Stuart Mill's utilitarianism. What will be the best for our, our culture? What will help mm. our culture to grow sure. and to thrive? Mm. And what mm. will help people to uh, do better? But the problem with all these descriptions from a, a Christian point of view is that we come back to what is this transcendental standard? We can't just go from an is to an ought, that this is what uh, a, a thriving society looks like or this is what a uh, a safe population looks like is not the same as saying this is what we should be doing or this is what we should aspire to and that's where i think the the, the link is broken in any naturalistic view of the universe i don't think you need a transcendental um morality to be able to say ought um in my view we ought to enable our children to grow and develop freely as they are to be the most complete, most rounded, best people that they possibly okay, can be. Okay, but, but what if someone in another culture in another time says, I believe we ought to keep our children in subjugation and not teach them anything, especially if they're girls. What makes your point of view the right one? compared to his isn't it just your personal preference isn't that what it boils down to? i don't think it is personal preference i can't pin down why i think that one is wrong and this one is right but then but it, it is just it, a it, it seems it, it no I, it seems to me to be um just common sense well, again, the common sense we would have to ask where it comes from, because it's probably true, isn't it, Leslie? You and I walking down the road, we see a, a child about to run out in front of a car. Both of us would want to save that child, stop that child running out. We both have that instinctive desire to protect and so on. But once we move on to moral issues, for me as a Christian, I think that's a basis to start thinking about that as a moral argument for the existence of God. It's part of the basis of thinking we are not simply... Uh, uh, Animals were not simply creatures uh, that, that have evolved with slightly sophisticated survival techniques. There is actually a, a moral fabric to the universe, which is a signpost, a pointer to the existence of a moral God. Mm. I, I wouldn't go along with that. I just think that we were reacting as decent human beings. Well, the word decent's a bit I like, because yeah. that's the moral standard that comes in. Exactly. We're not just reacting as animals, we're reacting as decent well, course, moral beings. Animals <laughs> in do react God. in that kind of way to protect their own sometimes. We, we need to just start to draw things to a close. I think you want, there was a final point you wanted to bring out about the resurrection. I think we'll have to treat well, this rather briefly, I'm afraid, Chris. Uh, but, well, uh, I, I think the, the nub of the book for me, uh, when we uh, have moved through all of the, the, the passages on, on difficult moral issues and so on, is... Who is Jesus and, and what did he come to do? And the resurrection of Jesus is really dismissed pretty quickly towards the end of the book. And, Leslie, if I may just quote you on page 233 of your book, you, you describe the stories of the resurrection of Jesus as the creation of emotional and superstitious people. Now, that's not the accounts that I read in the Gospels, uh, or indeed in, in Paul in, in his letters. Uh, what I read is, is very sober, very thoughtful, very reflective. It draws upon some very unusual observations i mean that women were the first to, to discover the tomb empty in a culture where the credibility of a woman's witness was not treated as of equal of, of men it seems strange as a story that's made up by these emotional and superstitious people 
that they come up with an account that is so sober and has been so persuasive, of course, for 2,000 years. I mean, many people from very uh, intelligent as well as very uh, simple backgrounds have been persuaded that Jesus is risen from the dead. Uh, partly the historical accounts of the of the Bible, partly through personal experience and the impact of Christ for 2,000 years in terms of the church and, and history. But for all these different reasons, the, dismiss, the dismissal of the resurrection of Jesus is something that I found quite striking towards the end of the book. And I wondered whether, as I read the book, I wondered whether that happened a little earlier on than the book suggests. I mean, I wonder whether maybe even before that encounter with the Indian friend that you, you mentioned, whether you were already pretty sceptical of the idea of the miraculous and the resurrection of Jesus. Not sceptical, no, and not sceptical of the resurrection. Um, I did always have problems with the idea of miracle. And, of course, as a clergyman, you can bypass that. You talk about a miracle in terms of the value of that story for today and you don't actually face up to the question of whether it really happened. Well, some clergymen do that. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a very well, unwise strategy. Right. But yeah, but it, it can be done. And, and it can be done unconsciously. You're not consciously saying, did this miracle happen or did it not happen? Um, curiously enough, a stupid little thing was what finally registered with me I was doing my morning devotions, reading the story of Jesus walking on the water, and I thought, I don't believe that. I had never actually said that to myself. I don't believe that. I probably never had done. Mm. But, but does, you, does your eventual dismissal of the resurrection stem from that basic it stems, disbelief in the miraculous? Yes. Because then aren't you simply pre, pre, prejudging from. the text that... If people are reporting a man coming back to life, then they must be superstitious and, you know, circumstantial I accounts. I don't think so, because they do it again and again. <laughs> yeah, but aren't you, isn't no, that the circular in, in argument? In the New Testament, Chris they do it talking. again and well, again. Jairus' daughter. I don't think those count as examples of, of the resurrection of Jesus. You see, that we've certainly got resuscitations from the dead. That's right, we can call those resurrections. But those people rise to die again. The resurrection of Jesus is, is clearly treated in a different order in the New Testament yeah. because of the resurrection body. Yeah. Quite different. It's really a glimpse into the eternal life that we have in the present. That's how I understand the resurrection of but Jesus. Come back to Jairus' daughter. Everybody says, Jesus raised her from the dead. Jesus didn't say that. He says she's only sleeping. Yeah. yeah. Though sleep, of course, is a, is a metaphor for death. And in that, a sense, we're all only sleeping when well, we die. Paul well, uses that language. Um, you've, you've got that determination to push to something more wonderful than actually happened. Was so it for the, the, the feeding of the four probably thousand? very pleased the whatever happened. Well, yeah. <laughs> the feeding of the four thousand or the feeding of uh -huh. the five I mean, we, we are going to have to wrap this up, I'm afraid, Dennis, and I hate to break in on what is another fascinating God. little d discussion that's emerging at the end of this programme. But um, if you want to really kind of 
um, in-depth discussion on the resurrection? Well, we did it with two of the probably leading lights on both fronts um, uh, just before Easter. Uh, Bart Ehrman, a leading critical scholar of the New Testament and uh, uh, an agnostic at the very least now, um, but a former Christian uh, against the resurrection. And, and Mike Lacona, uh, a, a leading uh, scholar in the US for the resurrection. Why not check that out if you're interested in pursuing this, this a bit further? Uh, I'll, put the, I'll put the link up with this program again uh, on the web page. Um, for the moment, gents, I, I, I didn't want to, to draw it to a close here because it was just getting really interesting <laughs> there. But, but we are going to have to draw it to a close. Just, just any final words, Leslie, uh, as we sign off. Um, people can obviously get hold of your book. Um, but, but for you, the Bible ultimately needs to be treated as a work of human hands, not, not divine. Very much so. Um, I value parts of it. I find parts of it interesting. And large parts of it, I dismiss. You do. You do. Chris? I love the Bible. I'm on a great adventure. I'm learning new things every year. There are many unanswered questions and uh, many questions Leslie helpfully raises in his book. But I, I find that this is a great adventure of learning more about God through his word. And, you know, the resources are there. When Leslie said he did this book without resorting to any commentary or any critical discussion from 2,000 years of history, I think that's not the best strategy because I think we need to learn from others what they've discovered. And there's a wealth of resources to help us sort out some of the apparent contradictions or difficulties we encounter. Well, thank you, gentlemen, both. It's been a really enjoyable discussion today and carried out in good spirit. And uh, thanks for, for coming in, Leslie, uh, all the way up from uh, the South Coast. And the same for you, Chris. You're Likewise. from a similar neck of the woods. Um, and uh, links to both of you guys, to the book and to uh, Moreland's Bible College, where you teach, Chris, uh, with the, the podcast of this programme. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that discussion. Please let us know what you thought. Email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or leave a comment on our Twitter account at unbelievablefe or on the Premier Unbelievable Facebook page. And do check out our website, premierunbelievable.com. That's premierunbelievable.com. Thank you for listening and see you next week for another unbelievable classic replay. 